Xgrowth has helped B2B tech companies design campaigns that open doors in their strategic target accounts, roll out targeted ABM programs, scale ABM programs, and select the right tool and tech stack for a successful ABM initiative. These are all things Xgrowth has helped their clients with. If you're interested to learn how Xgrowth can help your firm's ABM program, check out Xgrowth at xgrowth.com.au. That's xgrowth.com.au and chat with the APAC ABM agency. What's up, marketers, and welcome to another episode of the Growth Colony Podcast. I'm Liza from Xgrowth to tell you that each episode we bring in B2B leaders to chat about the yeses and nos to achieving those everyday wins in the marketing world. Whether you're new to the B2B game, working at a leadership level, or even just showing some interest, we know you'll love the episode. So grab a drink, get comfy, and enjoy the show. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode. I'm Shane Hoda with Xgrowth and today I'm talking to Norm Jeffries, Managing Director and CEO of Truis, about his approach to staff retention at Truis. When I was going through LinkedIn, I noticed a large number of Truis employees who've been at the company for 5, 10 or even 15 years. These are crazy numbers, especially in the tech space. So I'm really excited to chat with Norm about it today and see what's the secret. Norm, thanks a lot for, ju- for jumping on the podcast. You're welcome. And Shaheen, thanks for taking an interest in Truist. Appreciate that. No, you're more than welcome. And uh, and as I said, I'm I'm very excited to have a chat about this because I think it's very rare in the in the tech space to come across companies who are able to retain staff for as long as uh, as a large number of people at, at Truist have, have been with the company. And I guess where I would love to start is, I'd, I'd love if you could explain a little bit about what is your time frame when you look at business? You know, how far you look into, and I think that's a great place to start for us and, and then dive deeper. So yeah, lo- love to hear when you when you think about timelines, what what timelines are we looking at when when you look at business? That's a that's a great question. I'm very very lucky that with Truist being a privately owned business, the time frame we can look at can be not necessarily quarterly based, but much longer term. So for me, I would say it's beyond my life at Truist for a start. So I look at it as being a, a, a I'm part of a legacy, and I and uh, leaving something better than I found it. So making sure that we're doing things today that set Truist up to be successful in 100 years' time. We still set, you know, weekly and quarterly goals, but we're, we're okay if things don't quite go right as always we plan for a quarter by quarter because we're always looking out into that longer term. As a business, we have a 20, like a, a BHAG, which can be up to a 20-year goal. Ours is a bit over 10 years. And that's to be financially independent to give you and your family peace of mind. So it's internalised to our staff. So right now we're focused on doing things that make Truist, I guess, consist a consistent income earner so that our people can feel safe here. And yeah, so very much longer term, primarily focused, Shaheen. Interesting. Interesting. I mean, it's it's so... And I know a lot of the literature talks about that, but it's just so rare to hear about that these days where it's all about the next quarter and what's happening in the next half year. So that, that's that's really refreshing to hear. And especially with the stock market, just like you talked about being a public company, it's all about next quarter and, and you know, is the stock price going up or down or, or if going down, what are, we, what are we cutting and what are we changing? Yeah, that's right. I mean, as I said, I think being privately owned makes it makes it a lot easier for us because we don't have to worry about a whole heap of shareholders. Um, you know, we can focus on our people and, you know, I, I guess uh, what the, the three owners want out of the business. Yeah, got it. I also know we, we had we, we chatted earlier and uh, it's very clear that long-term planning is super important to you and in, in the truest team. But you also talked about there, there are three pillars of sustainability that you monitor very closely at Truist. You've put in place that 
you were saying that you think it's it's a very crucial component for also maintaining people and keeping people in the company. I love to explore those. Let's let's talk about these three pillars of sustainability. What what are these? Yeah. Okay. Well, that, look, thanks for asking about this, Shaheen, because from a sustainability point of view, it's I think one of the key things is to talk about them and spread the word. So the three key pillars are social or, or people focused. So it could be things like diversity, equity, inclusiveness, your general culture and happiness within the office. The next one's community. So the fact that Truist doesn't just exist for itself, that exists for a broader purpose. So that could be local more local entities, it could be national entities, but supporting that the, the greater good of the world. And then the third thing is the environment. So just generally, you know, are we doing things to make the planet sustainable? So there are the three things that we look at from a business point of view. So people, community, and environment. All right. Let's, I, I, I want to unpack all, all three of those, right? Okay. Um, and I want to dive a little bit deeper. So let's talk, about, let's talk about the first one, which is social, aka people. What does that mean? Like what, what are the, the, the building blocks that go into the social component? I guess as a... From our point of view, I guess probably the first and foremost is we're, we're looking for our staff to be happy and for it to be a, a positive culture. We've, we've also learned along the way that, you know, if, we, if the organisation's diverse, it can have a great impact on, on our business. And some of our teams are quite diverse and some haven't been. So, we're, so we'll, it'll mean that we will do more to bring in diverse people so it could be how we advertise we've looked at some of the ads we've ran and we might mean that actually the words in this may be more attractive to a male than a female so we'll make sure the ads are open to to all genders and and different race like different ethnicities other things i guess that we'll do here um is things around personal development so making sure that our people are um feel that they've got a career here or if they if they haven't that, that it's easy for them to identify and move on so anyone that starts here like an awesome outcome would be if they retired if this was the last job they've applied for and got i can be great for those people to retire here so we'll, we'll do everything we can like we're setting budgets so we've got a um, per person we have a three thousand dollar budget for education and that and that's per year is it per yeah per year yep well, you get access to a lot of free courses from some of the partners we have. So there's lots of things like that. And we can do better at this in terms of understanding what it is our people want to do and help them get there. One thing we have learned, and that is that um, to make it easy for people to move from one team within Truist to another team. So the leaders are all very open with that. So someone could start in customer service, but maybe they end up moving to the marketing team later on or or to a services team. And um, that's Whereas if I think back a long time ago, we we're probably a bit protective of our people. And if you hired someone, you wanted them to stay in your team. Whereas now it's it's very much the other way around. So aspirations can be very open between a person and their manager. We having a flex providing a flexible place to work. So the ability for a parent to be able to drop their children off at school and then come to work and do those. So work flexible hours. So that's something that's new for us. So we've offered flexibility in in, in jobs that start that way, or maybe someone does alter, you know, after they have a child or whatever to those sort of hours. But we haven't had a, a policy per se that really makes it easy for people to do that or to change from what might suit them today to something new. So we've invested heavily in that and we've in involved all our staff with that. We used to assess how we were going just by surveying our staff ourselves and not having any really sort of science to it, whereas we did learn it was best and we took to go and externalise that and do it properly. So we signed up for a product called Culture Amp. I don't know, have you heard of Culture Amp? Of course. I mean, they're, they're yeah. Yeah. So, so it was great to get a, an industry benchmark on ourselves. So what we were doing before was just trying to work out where we could do better and what our people thought and felt, whereas now it's, you know, really putting science behind it. So that's been good and and we've seen, you know, we've certainly been moving in the right direction. And 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 what I really like about that is it tells us scientifically where what things we can do to make it uh, have the most impact on our staff. So and it might be something we might have thought of. So that that's been a really good tool for Truist. 
they're probably some of the main things that you know that we've been working on Shaheen. got it got it norm these these like three pillars that you talked about and i want to dive into the other ones but as as you were talking about it is this something that you've recently put in place has this been around for ages or you've recently formalized that how when, when did this happen just the COVID thing yeah, no, that's a great that's a great question. So many of the things we've had aspirations and and if I, if I think about the environment, for example, okay, we put solar panels in a long time ago because we wanted to have a positive impact. But we're we're really um, quite lucky where Hewlett Packard put out a challenge um, a bit over a year ago on sustainability, and they helped us formalise goals and set like really document it quite closely across all these things to things that we wanted to do or should do. So it's not something that, uh, it's something that I'm grateful to HP for introducing us to. So we formalised a plan out over a year ago onto all sorts of um, things, whether it be training around sustainability, so having our staff participate in training, promoting and advertising externally that we're, that we're doing things. But yeah, so we've always had a little bit of it, but certainly from a formal point of view, it was HP challenging us on the issue that helped us probably achieve a lot more than we otherwise would. Like I think it's probably more than doubled the, we would have done some things, but we've done more than double than what we would have if we hadn't have stopped taking an assessment of where we we're at and then written down a heap of goals around these three categories. Interesting, interesting, okay. Let's jump into pillar number two, which is community. And I, I love that. And I, I, don't, I don't know if you've come across their literature where I was reading about Salesforce, where they have the, I think it's called, they call it the triple one or something in those lines where 1% of three things, and I know 1% of their revenue goes to charitable activities, 1% of their staff time, and then 1% of their product. Tell me a little bit about the community component. What does that entail? Because one thing, one other thing that I would say before before we dive into that, I feel like these three, three pillars that you talk about, they feed one another as well, where the community stuff also helps the the, the social component of the of the team. The again, the environmental and sustainability side of it also feeds into the community, also feeds into the social component. Tell me a little bit about the community part. Yeah, actually, that's yeah, it's very well put, and they do feed into each other. And what, what I'll start by saying is going back to the Culture Amp survey and when our engagement score changed so much, in a lot of the free text, so many of our staff commented on the community piece. And so, you know, certainly our people were more engaged at work, but they really seem to like participating in the community. So I think it's had a, a really big impact on the business. So one of the, one of the things... We've always been, I think, a fairly generous business donating money to the community. We got a bit smarter in how we involved our staff. So our staff set up a committee and they choose where we donate. So right now, we just have a set figure every month, regardless of how much profit we are or are not making, we donate $5,000 of truest money to a charity every month. So that committee, they they got to review and choose what charity or charities that we'd partner with so that and they had just absolutely free reign there and then so that that's giving away truest money but they also then came up with you know with these charities what other things can we do can can we donate our labor force to them so that you know some of our people can go and work instead of or they're still getting paid by truest but to spend those hours going and work working and it could be in a shopping centre selling daffodils, it could be going and going, going to uh, Queensland Cancer Council and jumping phones and and calling and thanking up people that have donated money to them. There's all sorts of things that we've done or that I've done as well. Uh, going for walk, like doing um, walks to fundraise and that's another piece and, and fundraising ourselves. So besides Truist donating 5000 every month, the team often have come up with ideas to to raise extra money for these charities. So I think the big thing was giving our staff the power, empowering them. We don't make anybody do anything. So some people 
jump in and donate a lot of their time to the charities or their work time. Some some don't, and it may be that they just they have busy lifestyles and all that sort of stuff, or it may not be convenient today. But it's just a very it just works, and 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 I think it just our staff really love it. Do you have limits in terms of the the amount of time that a staff can uh, can contribute to to a charity? No, we haven't. We've just set a like minimums, like it might be, oh, we want to do at least 120 hours this quarter or 200 hours this quarter. So we'll set a bottom end, but we don't, we haven't set top ends. I, I guess if it was um, 50% of the time was doing work other than tourists, I think we'd have to, but it hasn't, it hasn't been that way. Got it. Got it. Got it. So yeah, it's, it's 120 hours across the company. Obviously they're about, if I'm not mistaken, the tourists are about like 70 people or so. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. And we'll set that per a quarter and then it will get measured by the committee that, that are doing it and people all sort of right, um, will share with them the sort of things I've doing. Some people do things in their own time on the weekend as well. Actually, that's what's been nice. There's been a n- number of activities that we've participated outside business hours and it's not uncommon to have 20 or 30 of our people turn up to do a walk through the bush. There's one earlier this year to raise money for CPL, Choice Passion Life. And that was just it was just nice to see our people donating their time on the weekend to be walking through the bush to help this great cause. So, yeah, and I was, yeah, I was pleased that, yeah, they were happy to be with each other outside of business hours. Got it. Got it. That's not always the case in, in some companies. So, that's that's amazing to, uh, yeah. to see. Yeah. And, and actually, the other, some of the other things is as you get going in the community, you start to do things like one of our, one of our marketing people work with the men's shed just down the road and they had trouble with their website. So he donated his time to help them modernize their website. Because of that, someone found them and donated $10,000 worth of money to them, which they they credit back to Jake, who did that work for them. Uh, It's just just doing those sorts of things. A a local councillor who wanted to help out about, I think it was about 30 local sporting groups with insights as to how to make it easier for them to run their different things whether it be athletics or football clubs she, she used she loaned our facilities and then there's about 50 or 60 people that came here and she had different speakers it could have been the police about blue cards and it could have been been you know someone about getting government grants just to help these clubs and that was another thing that our business did to just you know using our facilities outside of ours for these groups to to um, yeah, share and we've got nice facilities here, so it's just nice to be able to share it, share them. So it's, it can be all sorts of things, but it that all came from our people getting out in the community and yeah, just talking to people that are around us that um that, that we can partner with and help out. Interesting. And Norm, I know that the the point of this is not necessary. It's not it's not business, new business or or opportunity creation. It's really building that culture within the company, giving back to the community. Has there been an, a business impact as well coming through some of these? Like, has there been, again, I understand that the purpose of these is not that, but as a, as a, as a you know, a byproduct of this, has, what has been the business impact? Yeah, look, it does have a positive impact. I think happy people, so our happy staff means happy customers. So I think in terms of our relationships with our customers, it means for more positive relationships. I think as a culture, it's pretty easy for people looking outside at Truist to see what our culture's made up. And I think at a, some organisations, I think, want to trade with us for who we are and what we stand for. So I, I think that has definitely happened there. Other places, I had someone in my industry tell me how hard it is to find people. And he said, oh, you know, they'll put an ad out and Sometimes when they might interview someone at their premises and they just never hear from them again. You know, we've kind of been the opposite. So if we put an ad out, you know, I think everyone goes to Google and they and, and LinkedIn and, and, and company websites to see what you stand for. So you certainly get a sense of that. But when then when they come here for an interview, I guess they get to see that's when you really see what people are made of and you can see the tone of the place. So for, for attracting and hiring staff, it's had a big impact on that. So most people that come here and interview with us almost always want to work for us. And um, so I think, and I think that comes back to the, this whole sustainability and culture piece personally. And, and 
And look, you're right. I think it's important if somebody goes into it for the marketing reasons, I guess it's okay because if you're doing sustainable things, it's better than doing nothing. But that's not why we're in it. We are really into it because we enjoy it and we want to make a, a difference. I think I might have shared with you, we used to be called Computer Merchants and we had a brand consultant come and look at our interview clients, interview partners. And when she, when she started, I asked her, I said, oh, what's the likelihood that you're going to tell us we need to change our name? And she said, look, Norm, it's unlikely. You've been around for 40 years, the business. It's, it's not, likely, not likely I'd do that. But she came back and she said, you do need to change our name. So then we went through the exercise of looking at a name and with staff input and the help of a company called Driven, we came up with a name called Truus. And Truus is a made-up word derived from the word altruism, doing good for mankind. And our company's purpose, so the purpose that our staff live by is together, helping customers achieve their goals. So I think it's 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 just all been a nice fit for us. You know, I'll go back. If people want to do sustainable things for marketing, I think it's it, it's great. It's better than doing nothing. But, um, you know, for us, it, we really do enjoy helping one another out and doing good things. And it, it makes for a great place to work. And, and we all have a lot of fun doing it. I love it. I love it. Let's touch on the third pillar, which is around sustainability and environment, right? Now, you touched on a little bit, you talked about solar panels, but let's dive a little bit deeper and I, I want to unpack that as well. Yeah. So, with that, I guess we set some hard, firmer goals. So, when we originally put solar panels in, we had an idea of the, our power consumption and, and the sort of impact it could have. And, and we did that. But I, I guess this time around, we wrote down plans or, 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 you know, when we did this plan a, a bit over a year ago, we set longer term aspirations about having a, a better impact on the environment. So coming back to the power, it could be, you know, some of the things that came out of it, having policies on procurement. So when we're buying some IT hardware for our own business, just looking at, you know, is it made from recyclable plastics? What's the power consumption of that product versus another product? Another policy internally about just just simply turning the lights off. So the last person to leave any team at the office turns the lights off that relate to that team. Other other things that we looked at were waste. We wanted to reduce our landfill. So we we did a number of things. We every desk had two bins. You had a general waste bin and a, a paper bin. So we took those bins away and put centralised bins in. That created movement, so people would more likely, well, you'd move more in the course of the day, so you get up and stand, and you interact with other people over at the bin. We introduced a third bin when we put these centralised bins, which was a soft plastics bin, and it was pretty cool. So we put signs up above each bin as to what goes in one, and you'd see people walk up to it, and you'd watch them as they put their hand out with the rubbish, holding the rubbish over the three different bins, reading the signs, trying to work out what bin to put it in. We played a game of cahoots to, to, which had questions around what waste goes in what bin, just to try and educate our people on, on the right bins to put it in. But the net result, actually, there was a few other things we did. So we did, we did that. We purchased a cardboard perforator, which means instead of buying bubble wrap, because sometimes we bring gear here, we might get 100 boxes, we'll, we'll build it and then we'll repack it to send out as one or two or 10 items, but we may use bubble wrap in that process. So this cardboard perforator means instead of sending cardboard off to be recycled, we can reuse it again and then the next person that gets it can be recycled. So, But it also means we're not buying bubble wrap. But the net result was our landfill waste reduced by 30%. You know, we've got soft plastics that are... Um, that that um, are getting reused. So that was, a, that, that was quite a positive thing. For me, What now this I did not know until we started doing it. So weeks into it, someone would come and say, hey, Norm, hey, I've, I've, I've said to mum and dad, we should have a soft plastics bin at home. Or someone says, hey, you know, I've introduced a soft plastics bin at home and the kids are learning this stuff at school. And I realised the power of as we participate in because I, I really thought what impact can Truus really have? We're just a drop in the ocean. But it was through that mind share and people taking things home and having conversations. And I and I if you think about 
the recent federal elections we had. I, I think part of that is it's just from all of us talking. So I think the more we talk about things and promote things as a community, it does make it so much easier for governments to then make policy that actually drives for a better better environments and, and community and all those sorts of things, right? Whether it be equal rights or whatever. So I'm all for us doing the little things because then we get to talk about it and 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 I think together it's together that we make real change happen. Another another thing that I found really hard, Shaheen, was our car. What is our car, Truus's carbon footprint? Over ten years ago, I attempted to to find that out. I did, I, I gave up. You know, if I go back to power and some of those things, it's pretty easy to to sort of get that data and, and start to move it into your carbon footprint. But as you start to work through the different things, scope one, scope two, scope three, it becomes really hard. So we made a commitment to, to purchase some software and then go through the process of calculating our carbon footprint, which means you break down all these things. How much carbon's produced on our people commuting to work, the food we supply here, the travel we have to customers. And I think just doing that's an important start, just learning where you are, like what sort of energy and carbon you are producing, because then you can start to set goals around it. So, yeah, so set, I would encourage with any of the sustainability things for people to, you know, take stock of where you're at, write down some goals and just start to make, even if it's just little things, like it's better than doing nothing. But yeah, coming back to the in- environment, they're really some of the main things that we did. And probably the last thing, and, I, and this all ties back into what, what you said about things being um, a bit like crossed over. We recently, we, we had a customer that got us to refurbish their office stores and they had old iPads. So we put new iPads in there. And with the old iPads, we we bought them back and we asked them for their permission to um, to be able to reuse them and donate them to a school. And they were they shared that actually they had wanted to do that anyway. They'd wanted to donate them to somebody in need. And we found some schools in, in, in lower socioeconomic circumstances where children don't actually don't have that sort of technology there. They're, these are primary schools. Some, some of these children will turn up to school in bare feet looking for a feed. So we're currently working back with the men's shed too, where we've we've got the iPads, we've removed them as a tenancy or belonging to this particular retailer. We, we've reinstalled a new version or, or, or updated them so that they can be new devices for these schools. The men's sheds helped out by doing some of the work and they wanted to be active in it, for, something for their members to participate in. But we're pretty close to starting to send these devi- devices out to schools at we're looking to be for that to happen in the next few weeks. But I guess if you think about the from the environment point of view, these machines are getting a second life, so that it's part of the circular economy. And then if you go back to the community, we're helping out some schools in need. And from a social point of view, and our and our people, they're loving being part of it. You know, it's it's quite rewarding for them. And you know, I'm looking forward to when we take these devices to the schools and and hand them over, even if it's just you know, I know the principals of those schools are going to be so happy to have these assets for the kids. Look, I'd, I'd share with you who the um, retailer was, but I'd probably, I just don't have their permission at the moment to, to say their name, but even though it's all good. But um, and we're getting that validated that they are good to have their name shared because it's a great thing that, that, that for them to donate to donate that. But, you know, back to your point, Shane, it does, everything crosses over. I love it. I, I love how... You've created this this integrated system around these three pillars for the company that is very obviously it's working and it, and it, and it's very clear that it's also not lip service where oh we're you know we got three pillars and it's social and it's community and yada 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 where a lot of organizations do let's be honest and um, and and it's very clear that this has been in the in the fabric of the culture because there are people that even though this was not formalized there are people who've been with have been with the company for 10 years is there anything else in terms of staff retention that you think is is really important at truest that we haven't touched on uh, that ha- hasn't has an impact in terms of the you know staff sticking around and uh, and and you being able to retain some of your best talent yeah look there has been so i think having fun 
so I love coming to work, right? So I'm not really personally, you know, I'm not someone that works from home myself, although I'm all four people working from home. But I like turning up to the office and it's not to come to work and necessarily do the work. It's to come to work and see and greet people and, and engage with them in things. And I, and I think making sure that – so our office environment, we do everything we can here to make it an attractive place for people to, to show up, physically show up to. But we're happy if they don't want to. For some people, it doesn't work. They want to work from home and they, they're at their best at home. But if they do happen to come in here, that, that, they can act, that they are going to have a good time and enjoy being part of the place. I think that's, that's one thing being a transparent workplace so our people can see pretty much everything that's going on we're a very transparent organization so we've got our own and our, our, um, some internal software where people can see some of the different core cut metrics that are going on we've always shared our PL data with our employees as to how we're tracking and those sort of things but but yeah so trans transparency is important that you know there are probably some of the main things I think, Shaheen. Can we can we unpack that a little bit more? The transparency, especially. I mean, it's 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 fascinating that you talk about you share PNL data. I mean, that is in in a lot of companies a no no. It's like uh, I mean, unless you're a public company, that's a different story. Yes. But um, t- can you tell me a little bit more about that? How did that come to be? Well, I, I didn't come up with the idea. The the founder of Truist did it really from the get-go. And it was probably more of a, what did sort of start off perhaps at a higher level to begin with. But what we wanted staff, I guess, to feel they were making a difference. So if we could share the financial metrics of the business and then help staff tie it back to how they do things, whether it's a receptionist greeting someone on the telephone or someone walking in and how it impacts our business and with repeat business and all those sort of things. We wanted to do everything yeah, everything we could to make them feel part of it. So it really, I think it really came about from that, helping create that sense of belonging. And if you know what's, what impact you're making on the place, actually it ties back into your previous question too, actually. We do want deeply desire for all staff when they have finished for the day that they can self-assess whether they've had a good day or a bad day. So that's certainly that that is back to that earlier question. But um yeah, it's certainly been an import an important part. There is it does come with a warning though. So so whilst we've always shared the financial data, I think you can overshare in the sense that you can't make it all about the financial data. So we do share the financial data, but it's secondary to culture and our people. So we so we want our people to know that when we're talking about the success of the business, what's happening for them is always first and foremost. And it hasn't always been talked that way. And then the financial part, that that is secondary. So you now when we're setting our quarterly goals, there'll be goals that are for our people and then say, by the way, these are the sort of financial ones that, that sit in there behind that. But if all, if all the business is transparently talking about finances and money, that, that can go, I think that can go the other way, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Yeah. And, I mean, I can totally see that. And, and my next question is, you know, that transparency, I think it's something that a lot of organizations might be aspired to to do. But then the question is, like, how much do I share? To to what, what depth do, I, do we go? How do we kind of mitigate if, like, the company's not doing well and people are like, oh, my God, should I start looking for another job? Yes. How do, so how, where is that? Is it like the, do you share the full PNL? Is there, you know, like, so that you also, for the benefit of the, of the staff. Yeah. How, how do you approach that level of visibility? Yes. We, we, look, we do share everything. We, the three owners, I'm going to say we, we're somewhat conservative and I'm, I feel very lucky that I've got two partners that like me, I know they, they, we like bricks and mortar. So um, we, Tru- Truist purchased our own building to operate on, right? So I think if I go back to that big picture that we talked about earlier, the longer term aspiration, the balance sheet is every bit as important as the P&L. So these publicly listed organisations that 
get a hard time reporting on quarter by quarter. That's less of an issue to us because we've we've got we focus on our balance sheet. So if when things are tough, we can say to our staff, hey, we own our premises. We don't have to pay rent. We own we own the facilities that we're in. And we invested in, in this longer term aspect that when we, more than 10, probably a good 15, 16 years ago, we saw a, tra- a, a change happening in the market. We'd already been saving a lot of our money that we earned, like, or part of it. And we said, why don't we go and buy premises in Truist's name? Because the previous premises were bought outside of Truist's name. And we let our staff participate in the acquisition of that building. So some of our staff own a little bit of the building. They don't own a part of Truist, but they own a bit of the building. Because I realised at the last building we were in, as an owner of the business, when I walked into the office and I put my hand on the door handle and I opened that door, that was more significant to me in ownership than what the the business was and those owners get paid essentially like a rent or whatever every every month and it's one percent so if you were to put in around talking in round numbers if you put in a hundred thousand dollars you get a thousand dollars every month if you cash out if you leave the business you have to sell the units back to the business but if you cash out you'll always it's written into the trustee that you'll always get the money you put in but we get the property value every couple of years. So, of course, it's worth more now than it was when we built it. So, they would get, you know, if we'd say it's doubled in value, they get double what they put in. So, that everyone that's bought in has had a good return. But tying it back to your original question, having that sort of philosophy helps us be okay about sharing the news when it's not so great in the quarterly profits because we can demonstrate that we're doing things in the longer term and we have and we have buffers. And as we do things in our business model to make recurring income streams stronger and, and better, and you know, I, I guess it also gives our staff a reason to help participate and support those initiatives. So I mentioned before, going back in time, that 16 years roughly, we saw this infrastructure as a service coming on and we realised that if we're going to invest in infrastructure as a service, Having a really healthy balance sheet will help banks lend us money if we need to buy lots of compute. So, you know, so we when we bought this particular building, we're in in our business name. We've subsequently we've gone and bought three other properties. So the Truist owns four properties. So not we're not in the business of property, but then from those properties, as they appreciate, we've been able to borrow against them to buy IT assets that we rent to organisations that. Um, you know, there's equipment that we rent to banks or provide infrastructure as a service to banks. There's some utility type companies that we, like there's a large number of organisations that rent equipment, but we've been able to build up this this future. But yeah, so to come back to your question, we can be transparent even when times are bad because our staff do know that we've got that longer term aspect and we do things towards it. I wanted to bring in the, the, the cancer thing and I wanted to ask you, about like how did that change your view on business? And I mean that was something that I was very interested to hear about as well. But yeah. I, I was I was also conscious of your of your yeah. time. Yeah, no, thank you. Look, the probably do you know what? I reckon the big thing with the cancer thing in business that because at twenty two, at age twenty two I knew something was wrong with my liver. At thirty three I was told I wouldn't live a full life and they they didn't know what it was at 22, but at 33, it was it was identified they had this thing called primary sclerosing cholangitis and that I wouldn't, I was not going to live into my, you know, 80s or anything like that. So that put a cloud over me where it probably, sadly, what I, I continue to do was probably live in the future, not live in the present. And I think, because I wanted to... I, Dearly wanted to, being a parent, I wanted to make sure that my wife and kids were, if something were to happen to me, that they wouldn't be left destitute or whatever, you know. So it all tied in nicely with my personal goals about, you know, making Truist a great place to work and long, you know, having recurring income streams and all those sorts of things. But I, sometimes, if I was in a meeting, Shaheen, I'd be thinking about the next meeting and what I've got to do next to to just to get these things right so that Truist would be okay if I was to die in the family. And it would come in waves. Like, you know, sometimes I'd feel, I'd think about it a lot and other times I'd, I'd forget about it. But when I, after going through the treat, after being told I had this cholangiocarcinoma, which is normally 18 months to live, and then getting, like, so when that happened, I, I, I was fortunate that I was at the place where I knew everyone would be okay without me. I knew that you know, I wasn't going to let the business would go on without me and my family was going to be okay. But it reminded me the importance of living in the present 
And I think sort of coming through that and then resetting these or doing locking in these sustainability goals, it just helped me commit to those things that are people-based. And, um, and I think that's probably the biggest impact that it's pr- that it has had on me was, yeah, people and, and being in the present with them. So it's very it's very profound and and you know you some some experiences would teach you things that you just wouldn't learn and otherwise and it just there's it's not 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 a strong enough force to make that sink in yeah no you're right um certainly i'm glad to like you know even even though i've had a liver transplant you go okay there's risks after you've had it the cloud that was always over my life it's just nice to have that gone and the doctor that so when I was 22 and they said something was wrong with my liver, I got prescribed to a fellow by the name of Professor Laurie Powell. And so at 23, I started seeing him and, and then he was with me at 33 and said and identified, you know, what the real problem was. And and I still, like, I, the last time I spoke to him was last year and um, towards the end of last year. And it was after I'd had my transplant. And, uh, you know, he, he'd be late 80s, I guess. And he goes, Norm, it's incredible he goes, I never thought you'd get to this age that you are now. And he said, the fact that you've had a transplant, he said, your medical, like the risk of you dying of a medical reason, it's the same as everybody else's now, whereas you've always had this, you know, thing that was going to shorten your life, he said. And, I, and I'd always told him earlier on that I, I wanted to see my grandchildren grow up. I mean, I told my wife, great grandchildren, but I, I needed my doctor to believe in me, so I dialed it back one day, grandchildren. But he always <laughs> He always remembered me saying that and, you know, he said, no, no, we're going to want to make sure you get to see your grandchildren. I don't have any grandchildren yet, but um, but it was always just, you know, it was, uh, you know, it was, it was when he said that I can't, you know, he was surprised that, yeah, I'd got to 50 really with the disease that I had. So I, I didn't realise how lucky I was um, when he, until he said that. I mean, I certainly realised that in Queensland, I was the first person to get this, have a cholangiocarcinoma and actually successfully make it to have a liver transplant. So while I was going through that treatment, I knew that no one in Queensland had managed to go through the radiotherapy and chemotherapy and successfully get to the other side to have a transplant. So I knew the odds were against me, but it was easy to just do what I was told, like do if it meant exercises or follow a particular diet. It didn't matter. I just did those things on the assumption, not on the assumption that I'd get through, but that if I did get through, I'd be right. I knew it would come down to that bit of fate, that test as to whether that the cancer had spread as to whether they'd do it. But yeah, just so it was really, really easy to work through. And I was busy all the time. I kept working. So I'd go to the hospital in the morning and have radiotherapy. Then I'd come to the office and I'd go back to the hospital for radiotherapy in the afternoon. Chemotherapy, I was, I was self-administering medications. So that was all right. So I just sort of kept busy through all that period. But then it wasn't until... You know, when they did that lap, once they did that laparoscopy where they took those tissue samples, that was in now I knew it was out of my control. And I remember when the doctor said to me, he said, Norm, you know, the pathology said it spread. I remember a tear came down my eye and um, all I could think about is, what am I going to tell my youngest child who was, she would have been 19 at the time. So she's at uni. So I wasn't worried about her and her career. She'd chosen what she wanted to do, but... Of all the, of the, I've got four children and my wife, but she was the one that was most bothered by my health. It, the rest of the family was very pragmatic about it. But I thought, what am I going to tell Piper? Anyway, do I tell her? Do I tell her this news that I'm, you know, it looks like I haven't made it? And anyway, I ended up, I did. We chose. We're quite a transparent family too, so I shared that. But it was equal. I remember getting, you know, when I got a week later, so I was in hospital. I'd not been so well at the time. And the tests had come back from overseas and uh, this uh, surgeon, Peter Hodgkinson, who's a legend, like to me, he's a hero and the team that works around him. I was in bed and he, he walked in and he said, do you feel like a hug? And um, and I could just tell by the way he said, I said, have you got good news for me? And he said, I do. And uh, yeah, so I remember, I remember, you know, getting out of bed and getting a hug from uh, the surgeon that was going to do the transplant. And this was quite late in the day. It was after five o'clock. And one of the administrators, her name was Marie Jarrett, and she's like a project manager in the, in the liver transplant side of things. She stayed back for probably a couple of hours to fill out the paperwork with me then and there to get me on the transplant list as of uh, then and there. It was just such a wonderful fe- feeling to know that, A, that I was going against the odds. Like, I've been told, it looks like you probably haven't 
got there, but we are getting a second opinion to then get it's okay, you're there. And then, so that was in the very beginning of December. At the end of November, they said, you haven't made the list. Beginning of December, I was told I was eligible. And then in February, I got the transplant. So a couple of months later. But yeah, no, sort of very, very uh, happy story, that one. Wow. Happy or happy ending. Wow. That is, yeah, that is, that's something. That's something. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you shared that. And I, I'm, you know, I'm super grateful for you sharing that yep. on, on the podcast and, uh, and the impact that I, that has had. And, uh, yeah, thank you so much for that. Have you read the state of ABM and APAC report yet? If you have, you'll know that 59% of marketing leaders are intending to increase their ABM investment in the coming year. Even bigger news is 0% of survey respondents are going to decrease their investment. It's an exciting time for ABM in the region. Discover the state of account-based marketing in APAC today. Download the full report at abm.xgrowth.com.au forward slash report. That's abm.xgrowth.com.au forward slash report. Before we wrap up, I want to also ask you a couple of rapid fire questions. And, uh, and and go through some of those. Are you, are, you, are you happy for us to jump into those? Yeah, 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 sure. All right, let's do that. So the first question I want to ask is, what is one resource, and it could be a book, it could be an audiobook, it could be a podcast, it could be whatever it is that has had a profound impact. And it could be more than one book, and we're more than happy to, uh, to get a list, but has yes. had a fundamental impact on the way you work or you live. I'm going to say... Probably Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. I, I guess learning at a younger age the importance of communication. It's good. Like it's something I encourage really everybody to read. I think it's good for students. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, I think it's just a great foundation for people to, to have, unless some, get, get some basic skills from. I love it. Very true. Very true. Question number two, and this is more about marketers. We haven't talked about this but much, but I also know you have a very strong, you, you do a lot of work on marketing and sales. I have a very strong background on that. When it comes to B2B, if you could give one advice to B2B marketers, what would that advice be? To B2B marketers, I think it is have a purpose and a goal as to what you want to achieve, something's important to you. That That then makes it, easy enough to do the work that you're going to have to do to get the outcome. So I think the main piece of advice is just knowing your own purpose in what you're doing, yeah, to give you the fuel when you're going to need it in, in those times when things aren't quite going the way you'd like them to go. And also it's pointing you in the direction of where you want to get to. That's probably, that's my number one piece of advice. I love it. Question number three, I'd also love to know who are some of the influencers that you follow. Now, whether that's in terms of sales and marketing or it's with regards to business and, 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 you know, business strategy and so on and so forth. Who are some of the, are there any influencers that you follow? There are. So someone that I like is Simon Sinek. I just, I like what he stands for. And that, you know, he talks a lot about the longer term stuff. He calls it, I think he's got the infinite game. And I also like his sort of, when he talks about purpose and those sort of things. So that's one. Jim Collins, from a research point of view, and I like his, like the research he's done on successful businesses. So I follow, I mean, in fact, in the thing behind me, you can see that's a bit of a, that's my version of a flywheel back there for Truist. And probably another one is scaling up. Vern Harnish, as a, I really do like the principles that he's uh, written about there in running a business. Just it covers a lot of aspects from cash to strategic plans and and those sort of things. But that are the sort of things I I do like. Actually, Atomic Habits is a is a good thing in terms of if you want to try and change something, just understanding how to change a habit. That's a newer sort of. That's a good book as well. Yeah, I I, I like. I actually do use that from time to time. I'm going to try to change something that I'm doing or, or, or whatever, or a sort of a habit. I, I think, yeah, that's very helpful. Solid, solid advice. Solid advice. I mean, those are all amazing people. I mean, I know Jim Collins, I don't know if you've, if you managed to pick up his new book. I saw he, he published a new book and I'm, I'm, I'm keen to have a, have a read. Obviously some of his classics are 
just classic and uh you can't replace them but uh but yes. no, those are those are amazing uh amazing thought leaders last thing last question i want to ask before we wrap up the podcast is what's something that excites you about b2b i know you're in the b2b space you do a lot of business to business work but what's what is something that excites you about b2b okay the most important thing is long-term relationships i love that in our industry we get to have yeah, long-standing relationships that you know they they start off fresh and and then they become you know uh, quite trusted and and you know you don't necessarily always get that in the b2c stuff but in b2b i yeah i think it's wonderful uh you know i love that we get to deal with change as well that uh you, ne- you know every day's different you know to the day before and things are always changing but yeah no i love having relate i, I love just long-term relationships and, and, and the, the new relationships become long-term relationships. Norm, this has been an awesome conversation. And I just want to say thank you very much for, for your time and all the insights. I mean, I, I was just fascinated from, you know, the, the three pillars, the transparency, the, the transparency on financials and business operations and all the stuff that we talked about. It's uh, very educational for me. And I'm sure it's very educational for a lot of people who've been listening to this, uh, to the podcast. So thank you so much for, for coming on the, uh, on the pod. You're welcome. Thanks um, for the opportunity to share a bit about Truist and, and a bit about our journey. Welcome. All right. Today's episode of Growth Colony was produced by Alexander Hipwell and Liza Maywald. It was edited by Dave Samito with additional editing by Liza Maywald and music arrangement by Alexander and Liza. Special thanks to Tina Wabe. We couldn't make this show without you. Growth Colony is hosted by Shaheen Hoda, Director of Growth at Xgrowth. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and give us a rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Do you think you'd be a great guest or just interested in a chat? Send through an email at podcast at xgrowth.com.au. That's podcast at xgrowth.com.au. That's all for now. We'll catch you next week right here on Growth Colony.